Hi, everyone. This is Alex Epstein, host of Power Hour, and this week is another Best of Power Hour. On this week's Best of Power Hour, we have an episode with Michael Lynch on the economics of oil prices. Michael, or Mike, as I call him, was one of the first guests on Power Hour and had done one of the the initial episode we did was on peak oil. And one thing that was notable about that was Mike was predicting that long-term oil prices would be between 50 and $70. And at the time I had him on, they were much higher. And so 50 to 70 seemed impossible. And then he was really right about that. And so later on in the episode you're going to hear today, he talked about just more broadly, the economics of oil prices, how he thinks about them, what he expects for the future. Uh, I'm a really big fan of Mike's. He has a really good understanding of energy economics and just a a vast amount of specific knowledge. So I am always glad to have him on the show and get his take, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Also, if you haven't yet pre-ordered your copy of the new Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, just go to Moral Case for Fossil Fuels or just type that in on Amazon, Moral Case for Fossil Fuels Revised and Expanded, and pre-order your copy. I don't. I believe you don't get charged till it comes out, so no risk right now. Okay, enjoy the episode. Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. It has been a while since we've done Power Hour. Still nowhere near back on the weekly schedule, but once in a while, I correspond with someone or talk to someone that I think, gosh, this is why we have Power Hour in the first place. And this week, I have just that person. I actually recorded this interview about two weeks ago, but it is still super relevant. It's about the question, what is causing the price of oil and what should we expect for the future price of oil? And the guest is Michael Lynch. Uh, For those of you who might remember, Michael Lynch was the second ever guest on Power Hour and years ago talked about how he believed that the price of oil was artificially higher, at least bound to go much lower, and he was considered a crank for believing that. This was even before the the shale revolution was as widely known as it is today. Uh, Shale revolution, also known as... uh, in simplified form as fracking. And uh, as Mike will tell us, he was called insane by people. And yet time and time again, he's been right about the nature of, of the oil markets. And more importantly than that, he has very, very clear explanations. So Mike uh, is my favorite energy economist that I'm aware of. He does great stuff. He gives fascinating explanations. So I thought I'd bring him on to answer this question, what is going on with the price of oil? So uh, I hope you enjoy it and join us with Mike Lynch on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. I'm very, very happy to welcome back Michael Lynch, president of Strategic Economic and Energy Research. First of all, Mike, is that the exact right way to say it? 
No, sorry. It's energy and economic research. Energy and economic research. Well, my my part of this podcast began on the wrong foot, but don't worry, <laughs> listeners. It's going to get uh, really good. So uh, Mike was on the show in February uh, 2011. Uh, I was a completely unknown uh, podcast host, and uh, my friend Rob Bradley Jr. happened to know Mike Lynch, whom I had read uh, write two really great columns in the New York Times, which, you know, f from the energy perspective of this show is, is oxymoronic. Uh, so I didn't think I could get this this superstar, but but Rob had good connections, and Mike deigned to be on the show. I swear this is how I felt at the time. I thought there's no chance this guy will be on, on this podcast, but he, he he's very accessible, uh, and those of you who have who remember episode two may remember that back then Mike was talking about, I believe, the possibility of, of $70 barrel, even $50 barrel oil, which seemed crazy to many people then. And then as prices went above 100, made it seem like I, I didn't actually think this, but I think many would have said, well, obviously, you know, we're, we're past that. That's never going to happen. And then prices started falling, and I started thinking, well, it might be a good time to talk to him again. So, uh, Mike, welcome back to Power Hour. Thanks a lot, and thanks for the praise, Alex. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm a fan, and, and uh, I definitely think you should check out his, his Forbes column. I think there's a lot of, of very valuable free advice for, for oil companies. I know a lot of industry people uh, listen to this podcast. So let's... Last time we discussed the fallacies of peak oil, this is something that I have discussed in my book, we've discussed on a bunch of shows. I'm, I'm more interested in the positives of oil forecasting, but let's go back to February uh, 2011. What, what was it that made other people think that prices were only going to go up, and what was it that made you think they might go down even to uh, $50? Well, uh, one thing is that people tend to uh, not think about where the price is. They tend to start with the current price and then think about the future trend. So very few people will say at $100, oh, the price is now high and should go down, or at $40, it's low and should go up. They tend to you know, just start with the actual price and look out from there. And Typically, people have tended to forecast higher prices just because of this belief that you know we're running out, the costs are, the easy oil is gone, costs are rising. Um, in the uh, after the 1998 price collapse, you had about five or six years where people forecast long-term prices being flat, um, and of course that was when they started going up, uh, which is a, another story entirely. But um, the, the tendency of people is, is to be very uh, general in their thinking about prices and to just think about uh, the problems and, and uh, especially on the demand side uh, where, you know, how on earth can you meet rising demand? And so they see ever tightening markets in the future and thus uh, they tend to believe in higher prices. Okay, well, that leads to the question, What's what's wrong with that? <laughs> well, historically, mineral prices have not tended to rise. Um, you know, I mean, you'll hear people say, oh, the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones, but the Bronze Age didn't end because we ran out of copper either. Um, there's, the, the, the empirical research has shown that over the very long term, you don't get a lot of change in mineral and energy prices relative to inflation uh, except where you have things like price controls uh, or unusual events. 
Um, and what you tend to see is much more cyclical price moves up and down. But the amazing thing is you tend not to see people uh, interpreting them as cyclical moves. That is, there's a lot of people who, who want to say, oh, you know, this is a new norm, a new paradigm. Uh, prices won't go down. It's a, it's a little bit like you see in the stock market uh, uh, or, the, you know, the great tulip bubble and then the dot-com bubble and so forth. Um, where it's there's a lot of uh, exuberance, some rational and some irrational, um, but it's it's simply astonishing how even when oil prices are high, most people will be convinced that they simply cannot go down. Um, when I was at OPEC about three years ago at a big conference, um, and the video's online actually, um, I'll send you the link. Um, I, I predicted fifty to sixty dollars in the long term, and the moderator thought I was joking. <laughs> and you know, fifty to sixty dollars is still well above the historical norm for prices. But uh, just the, uh, uh, I think there's just a blindness in uh, the combination of wishful thinking and a, a neo-Malthusian pessimism about resources that leads people to expect ever higher prices. How much of this has to do with with beliefs about the ultimate amount of just I don't know, what we can call hydrocarbon matter in the earth? I remember one of the things about your one of your Times columns that struck me was that you, you talked about uh, oil existing underground, not necessarily in usable form, but in raw form, in at least uh, ten trillion barrels, and I think it's it's quite a bit more than that. And I think people just think, well, we must. They always say, well, we must be near the point. Of, of quote running out, so any given level of barrel production per day seems seems like it's got to be near the top. Yeah, and it's amazing because you get. I mean, the, the peak oil people are the most extreme manifestation. Um, but mainstream geologists, when they talk about the amount of oil resources, they talk about what's available now. They generally uh, don't want to say what is the total resource, what is. What are we going to recover in the future? They say, what can we get now with current technology, current economics, current infrastructure, and so forth? Um, and those numbers just keep going up and up. And again, you sort of get people saying, well, they couldn't possibly keep going up. Um, and when you say, well, if the average recovery factor for conventional oil is 35%, you know, that doesn't seem like a very strict ceiling. Um, and, and I think this gets somewhat into the, well, you know, how can technology continue to advance? Obviously, we must know everything now or, or everything that matters. Um, and, and you actually see that more or less explicitly in some of the writings. Um, and, you know, I, I, William Pike, the, the geologist, uh, had a great column and he said, you know, if you, get, if you pick up an old catalog, you'll see a, a lot of basic tools that are the same as, as people used 75 years ago. And yet uh, we have computer controls and the alloys are so different, you know, that, that the actual operational efficiency is, is just phenomenally different these days. So in terms of then, as you mentioned, the cycles, how, how do the cycles work, broadly speaking? Broadly speaking, um, most of the cycles seem to be up, followed by you know return to normalcy. Uh, usually, uh, uh, you either get uh, something like a supply disruption due to war uh, or a revolution, that sort of thing, or occasionally uh, a demand boom. 
um, which is is kind of harder because you don't usually get you know a, a huge sharp increase in demand. But uh, wartime, like World War II, can, can do that. Uh, can cause that kind of demand boom. Um, but demand pressures, and then eventually um, the supply side catches up, and the prices tend to decline more gradually than they went up. And you see this actually in quite in, in other minerals besides oil. What's a good analogy in other minerals? Oh, like steel prices. Uh, steel prices sh- shoot up during wartime because you know everybody's building weapons, um, uh, but also they collapsed. You know, almost all minerals collapsed during the depression. The prices just dropped very sharply because industries were not. That's kind of the reverse of the of the wartime uh, supply disruption. That would be a demand disruption. Well, one thing people might counter as well is can't you can't you recycle steel, whereas oil is non-renewable? Um, you know, that's a good point. But, it, you know, when you're recycling steel, it's kind of like saying, uh, oh, this is a, a low-grade or, or a relatively high-grade ore um, resource that we're getting, that we're using, uh, as opposed to drilling into the ground. Um, it, for iron ore, uh, in theory, you if even if you weren't recycling the steel, you would still see investment going into um, the uh, uh, into the mining sector, and you know if if oil resources were much more constrained the way the peak oil people claim, then that that would be a factor. I mean, uh, yeah, the fact that you can't really uh, recycle the oil, you can produce it. Uh, you know, uh, ethanol, for example, you can produce liquid fuels and fuels from natural gas, but it's it's very expensive, uh, and you know, I don't think it's uh, that. Uh, important topic of discussion. So in terms of, let's just say, the story of, so in, in, in 2008, we had these very, very high prices. What's what's the story of supply and demand and the dynamics for the last 10 years? Because we've seen such dramatic activity over then, so I think it would be helpful for people to, to hear what, what are the actual dynamics versus, I think what we often hear is just something very oversimplified, such as well, there are all these Chinese drivers, and therefore the price has to go up and up and up. Yeah, um, actually, it's it's very funny. If you go back to late 2003, um, people were predicting falling prices in 2004 in a weak market, and OPEC actually had a meeting, and they planned to cut quotas. And then you had, uh, you know, the strongest demand growth in in, in history, I think, in, in terms of uh, barrels per day, uh, fueled partly by China, but also the U.S., uh, combined with production problems in Venezuela, Iraq from the invasion. Um, and uh, from there, you had relatively uh, good demand growth in China for a few years and globally. Um, but at the same time, you had the problems like Katrina, uh, which was uh, caused a lot of damage to offshore installations and the support industry in the Gulf of Mexico. But also we had the loss of Nigerian oil uh, from rebel activity uh, and then the Arab Spring, which took out Libyan oil and, and you know, the Syrian oil, which is not that big a deal. But it was a little bit like, uh, you know, being nibbled to death by ducks. So you had, you had on the supply side uh, a lot of constraints. Uh, you still had growth in places like Russia. Uh, Colombia returned to growth. So you know you were get you were getting some offset and and the Saudis uh, pumped more or less depending on markets. Um, the price 
uh, spike in 2008, I would have to say, was kind of a, a momentum-driven thing where markets had been kind of tight. People thought they would get tighter, and everybody just started buying in until they stopped. Um, and uh, then when the price, after the price collapsed in 2008, OPEC stepped in for the first time in years and said, okay, cut production, brought prices back up. And then we had uh, the Arab Spring, uh, a more or less normal demand levels, but uh, serious supply constraints. And Libyan oil is very high quality, so that had a, an outsized uh, impact on the market, the, the loss of oil from Libya. Um, and then uh, ultimately we got into the past three years sort of this uh, surge in U.S. tight oil production, uh, which offset the the loss for about starting about 18 months ago, I guess, of Iranian oil because of sanctions. Um, and so the the thing is, uh, this summer I think the trigger was uh, people saw a market that was in balance. They saw surging U.S. oil production, possible possibility of a return of Iranian oil production. Uh, but then uh, economic weakness in Germany and China, which uh, was more than people expected. So all of a sudden you had rising inventories and, and the prospects that they would continue to rise uh, out into the future unless OPEC acted. And OPEC chose not to act. And that, that gave us the lower prices, which seem to have settled around $50 right now. Yeah, well, that's that's really interesting to hear that that perspective, because it's it's interesting how these it just seems like at every stage, every year, the current price seems to be assumed to be permanent or an indication of permanence. And as you're telling it, it seems like, OK, well, there are these things that can be expected to abate, such as, you know, a given supplier being off the market will probably be back on the market um, at some point. What? What determines, this is a broad question, but among forecasters, who, who, what are different people giving weight to that causes very different forecasts? Um, that's a good question. You know, Historically, oil companies would always try to be very conservative because they didn't want to get caught out if prices went down. So they would take the current price uh, or even a three-year average price and, and you know, minus 25% as a hurdle rate. Um, bankers usually were uh, more conservative because they were funding things. Uh, now you have bankers, some of them, uh, who are trading commodities, and so uh, they may be a little more, um, a little more extreme, shall we say. Uh, what I've seen, for the most part, is you have people saying, well, almost any oil is price is possible. So it, it could go to $20 if, if you know, surpluses build too much. Um, people saying, well, we, we think the market will tighten and that uh, the industry can't respond, so prices have to soar. Um, and since they think 100 was normal, then 200 must be the new normal. Um, and that's not very credible, frankly. Um, but a lot of it is, you know, people not saying essentially what is the supply demand balance, but, you know, kind of what is the psychology of the market and how does that interact with the supply demand balance to yield price expectations? Um, I, I tend to try to make the, uh, the argument that traders get up every morning and they don't think at all about the history of the oil market. They look at the current price and today's news 
and that decides whether the price goes up or down on a given day. Um, and only occasionally, as last summer, do people start to say, uh, you know, the trends don't look good. In this case, the trends are very bearish and the price goes down. Um, so, you, you, you know, the, the notion if you go back and look at, at inventory levels or supply-demand balances or surplus capacity in OPEC, what you find is those things are, are very poor predictors of price in, in the short term that is on the course of, say, a month, a year. Um, because there's just so many other factors and expectations that, that come into play. Are they good longer-term predictors? I'm sorry? Oh, you said they're not good short-term predictors. Oh. Are they, are they um, good longer-term predictors? Well, uh, yes and no. Uh, the big problem is when you think about, uh, I mean, inventory behavior is, is more short-term. The supply-demand balance, in theory, is long-term. And uh, the... The main uh, explanatory variable should be the long-run marginal cost of production, which uh, is hard to figure out. A, B, it's it's policy-driven, and um, I'm developing for my book, you know, a, a sort of a model using supply curves. And the the argument would be, uh, in the early '70s, uh, you had a lot of cheap oil, and all the expansion was coming in the cheap areas in the Middle East, and when some of those countries said, let's stop expanding production. You, you basically shortened the supply curve, and all of a sudden you're drilling in places like Colombia and Argentina instead of Iran and Iraq, uh, and that drives the cost up and the price. Um, on the other hand, if countries like uh, Iran, Venezuela uh, open up the way Iraq did, then the supply curve lengthens, um, and you get uh, much lower prices in the long term. Um, but there's a lot of policy intervention that uh, most of it not very well informed, shall we say, um, <laughs> that uh, that determines exactly you know how, how much supply is available uh, for investment and development. So when you talk about the supply demand balance, what what in what form does this actually exist for the purposes of a a researcher to study day by day? Um, well, I guess, the, the, you know, the question would be, uh, you know, in, in classical economics, and this is the kind of modeling I did 40-some years ago, um, uh, the um, – sorry, 30-some years ago. The, uh, you, you would look at supply and demand trends, and if supply didn't seem capable of keeping up with demand at a given level, then you would, you would assume that prices would go up to provide more revenue to develop more supply. Um, and in, in a model, if, if you had a model that worked that way, you would show it as sort of, you know, falling inventories because of insufficient supply, raising the price. But in the long run, it's mainly, you know, is there enough supply coming online? And the biggest problem there is if, if you look at any given price, um, then you have to figure out, okay, how much investment is that going to yield and where? Um, if the investment is in, you know, Colombia instead of Iraq, you get very different production outcomes. This is why it's so hard to predict uh, the supply of oil. So, if you if you essentially assume a fairly open, benign investment environment for the upstream oil industry, you would expect a much lower price. Uh, you would get a lot more oil at any given price. And then the demand side, the price matters, but economic growth is is all is tends to be dominant. 
um, in the sense that there's so many places in the world where it's a question of can they afford the oil, not so much, you know, is it uh, $50 or $75 a barrel. So uh, the demand side, unfortunately, most people tend to to leave out the price when they almost completely when they forecast demand. It seems you know they'll change their price forecast and leave the demand forecast uh, unchanged. But you know demand is going to be driven by uh, the fact that oil, uh, aside from being moral, as one recent author said. Um, <laughs> You know, oil oil use is uh, very efficient in a lot of applications, um, and you can't get away from that uh, just by saying the price changes 20% or, you know, people uh, put on carbon taxes or something. You're still not going to ride a bicycle to the emergency room. Uh, a bunch of questions, but just to follow up on, on that one, in terms of, I mean, what is the actual... So, I mean, I can see supply and demand reflected by you can monitor how many barrels are actually being purchased per day and you can monitor the prices. But how are you how are you monitoring demand apart from I mean, apart from the point at which it reaches equilibrium and barrels are actually sold? Like what is demand independent of that? Um, you, you mean in terms of the data? Yeah, like when people say, well, I, I just always find it confusing when people talk about our demand is. Like demand is higher than supply, but but I mean in practice they they yeah. equilibrate. Yeah, and and they usually do so through inventories, and you know there's there's unfortunately a lot of play in the system. There's usually one or two million barrels a day discrepancy in in the data, but when you look at uh, production, consumption, and inventory change, it, it should zero out, and it, it never does, and it never comes close except by accident. Um, so uh, you can reach a point where you're, you, you see that uh, demand is, is stronger than supply and inventories are falling. Um, and at that point, you would expect that prices would go up, uh, especially if it appears that OPEC is not going to raise production, uh, or especially the Saudis, or if they're already producing flat out. And, and the classic case was the year 2000. Uh, you know, demand was very strong. Uh, the supply, the price collapse in 1998 meant that uh, non-OPEC supply was, was weak. Um, and so uh, the market was actually extremely tight that year. It was, it was uh, you know, sort of the, the first, or I'll say the second post-70s price increase that was driven solely by market factors, not political factors. But the price only went to about $30. Um, so uh, it, it wasn't extreme. Um, and... So uh, that that's and that's the big trick there, though, is is that the demand because the demand data tends to be so bad in much of the world, you often don't have a great sense of what the real supply demand balance is, except by looking at inventories. And even there, about half of the world's inventories are not reported in any meaningful way. You know, places like India, China, Brazil, we don't have good data there. So. You're sort of watching uh, a lot of secondary variables like are people buying tankers to store oil? That means that inventories are too high. Uh, is oil suddenly flooding uh, the U.S. market? Uh, maybe that implies that uh, the Asian markets are oversupplied, even though we don't have data on the inventory. You can kind of try to guesstimate it based on that. Uh, but it's, it's a very imprecise uh, science. All right, I want to move now to the shale energy boom. 
Uh, how, mm -hmm. I've hear, heard a lot of different narratives on this, uh, including, you know, at one extreme, uh, people say, well, this should have never happened because prices were, inf you know, inflated all the mm -hmm. way to this is just, you know, these this is going to end up being super cheap to drill because prices are going to go above $200 uh, a barrel. Mm -hmm. Can you give us your sense of the, the economics that began the boom and then uh, the economics today? Um, you know, I would say it, it was not really economics that began the boom so much as entrepreneurial spirit. George Mitchell saying, you know, maybe we can do this and, and fiddling with it for years until he figured out how to produce this stuff efficiently, natural gas down in the Barnett. Um, so, uh, and, and once he figured out that, I think there was just a momentum that, that could not be stopped. Um, if the price of oil had not been $100, you would not have seen as much drilling in places like the Bakken. You would have seen a lot more experimenting to get uh, the optimal production rates and costs. Um, but when the prices were high, people knew they could drill even pretty lousy wells and still make money. Um, so that, that encouraged people, uh, you know, who, who, shall we say, were not quite as expert at uh, producing from shale as, as uh, some of the old timers. Um, now, what you've seen, though, is as, as things have spread, um, because the shale, uh, the, the, it's a lot more, I don't know, idiosyncratic, I guess, than, than conventional oil in the sense that, you know, you, you really care about flow rates and fracturing and so forth. And so each shale is different and, and even in different areas. So there's a lot of experimentation that goes on. Um, and when you look at places um, where people have only just started producing, you know, like the Utica, for example, uh, or the Granite Walsh, you, you don't have a good sense of where we're going to be in four or five years based on initial results. You know they'll be better, but you don't know how much. And, you know, what we've been seeing is people have, have continually made significant improvements on the natural gas side, um, just, you know, massively increasing the amount of gas they get per well, uh, cutting drilling times, reducing, uh, you know, crew needs and so forth, uh, so that uh, the price of gas, natural gas, you know, this is it's awfully cold in much of the U.S., uh, not in California maybe, but <laughs> the rest of us are freezing our little booties off. Um, and, and the price of gas is under $3, which, you know, if you'd said that even two years ago, people would have thought you were insane. Um, will oil do that? Uh, I think possibly, uh, maybe not quite such phenomenal results, which would be kind of the equivalent of, you know, profitable shale oil at, you know, $25 a barrel. But I, I think what you'll see is uh, right now uh, the worst of the wells and, and the, the least efficient drillers, you know, the, the top, the, the worst 10 to 20 percent will just drop off. But that won't affect volumes as much because those were the worst. Um, you'll get what the industry calls high grading. That is, people go after the, the most attractive prospects. So the, the average production per well goes up just from that. Um, but also you'll have people continuing to improve uh, the cost to where I think what we'll see at you know, $50, $55 a barrel uh, is that the big plays like the Bakken and the Permian, uh, the Eagle Fort, 
uh, you'll you'll get continued uh, production growth, a bit more muted, but a lot more, a lot of concentration there. And then some of the outlying plays like uh, Granite Walsh, maybe uh, people will will tend to focus on uh, experimenting first uh, until they really get it right before they go whole hog into into major drilling programs. If if it can be generalized, what is the industry's cost uh, or price expectation? You you had some. Yeah, I think you. Well, I know you do uh, some form of energy stand-up comedy. I've never, never been there in person to see it, and it's it's not available on the web, to my knowledge. But I, I saw you no. had a, a joke about how, you know, that which is amazing that something can not be captured uh, on the web. It must not be controversial enough. But but we, we, you talked about you know people forget that it's a boom and bust industry, and and they think it's a boom and boom industry, and that certainly, I I can see that that mentality. How much of that, how much of that mentality has been on display in the industry over the last several years, leading into this fall in prices, which seems unexpected to most? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, it, I used to joke years ago, going down to Texas and say, "Remember uh, the bumper sticker in the '80s? God, give me one more boom, and I promise I won't screw it up." <laughs> well, guys, are you screwing it up now? Um, and you know, and I said maybe you should all invest in bumper stickers uh, as a diversification. Um, you saw when the prices first started going up ten years ago, the big companies especially said we are going to exercise capital discipline. We do not want to drive our cost up uh, and just lose lose all the extra revenue to higher costs. Uh, that didn't last too long because, you know, people start poaching your people and your equipment and you, you got to respond. So uh, you got you had, especially with the small companies, uh, you had you had, shall we say, the irrational exuberance where uh, they went into debt seriously. Uh, and Chesapeake Energy is probably the most egregious example uh, where uh, uh, McClendon convinced himself gas prices couldn't go down because his costs were high, and he borrowed a lot of money at the high highest price, um, and you know now he's not with the company anymore. <laughs> um, Continental Resources is is somewhat uh, similar. Uh, some people say Exxon's purchase of XTO was was a case of buying at the high. Um, but the big companies uh, tend to have more money and deeper pockets. They have not built up their debt quite as much as uh, the, the, the very small, small, and, and sort of small, medium companies. Um, and that, I think, was a, a kind of a big mistake. Um, you know, if, if people are paying $15, $20 an hour for Burger King workers in North Dakota, you can understand that means that the, the drilling hands are going to make a lot more. Um, and people thought at $100, well, you know, that's okay. Our revenue will cover it. Uh, and now you're seeing a lot of these guys in trouble. Uh, and I think you'll see a bunch of them go under and be snapped up and so forth. So you, you did have a mix of... of you know, the industry saying, look, we know we're not running out, which was good, uh, and prices will go down again for, you know, they would say that for at least the first few years of high prices. Uh, and then you started to see it move back. I mean, you know, uh, I mentioned the OPEC talk I gave on the panel was the CEO of the French company Total. And, you know, he said, well, one doesn't like to call someone an idiot, but... 
cost of a hundred dollars a barrel, you know, and then if the price goes below that, uh, people will invest less and the price will go back up. Um, and that I think is kind of, a, 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 you know, the wishful thinking fallacy, um, that a lot of executives get into, uh, not so much the Exxons and Shells, but, uh, certainly some of the smaller companies and total uh, among the big companies may be the most egregious. Just incidentally, was that the CEO who died recently? Yes, he died. Uh, Christophe de Marjorie, who died in the plane crash in Moscow. In the plane crash. And I, I had nothing to do with it. It's yeah. Just... <laughs> a number of people who disagreed with me have died, usually uh, old age. <laughs> so. Not, yeah, Matt, Matt Simmons. Where, where, yes. Where, I, were you, I... where were you when that happened? <laughs> you know, it's funny because there were there were people suggesting uh, either that BP or the CIA killed him, and I was a little surprised since I was one of his harshest critics. I, ne I never found anyone suggesting I did it, but uh, I probably shouldn't say that. Uh, you know, Matt uh, outside uh, Matt and I could be more or less cordial. Um, I didn't dislike him as a person. Uh, his work was pretty pretty awful, but. Uh, uh, it's, you know, I don't, I don't think his uh, death was anything mysterious, unfortunately. Um, you know, sad for his family and friends and, and frankly, you know, we're all getting older, Alex. Yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. Um, well, speaking of, of critics, I'm curious how, I, I'm curious about John Brown's views. Cause I was on a, I was on a podcast the other day and one of John Brown's employees, or at least he called himself an employee of John Brown, who knows what level that means you're at. But supposedly, he was calling John Brown prescient in terms of John Brown saw that once we hit the late 90s, resource prices would permanently go up. What? And he was claiming this last <laughs> week. So what, what? what is this argument? Are you familiar? I just didn't even really know this. Uh, I had not heard that. Uh, you know, I... I uh, uh, okay, people... Um, Bob Horton, who was, I think, the immediate predecessor or the predecessor before of John Brown, you know, he back in the late 80s said, aha, uh, we're on the verge of higher prices, not, not you know, sharply higher prices, but rising prices. And he, he uh, increased BP's debt load, thinking the higher cash flow would cover it. Um, so it's possible John Brown did. Um, I have to admit, I know a lot of people who claim to have seen, uh, you know, this or that, um, and, uh, you know, to have been at, at Woodstock and fought for the French resistance. And uh. probably, uh, I think if you go into any bar in America and you find an attractive woman, there's a man saying, yeah, you know, honey, I was on SEAL Team 6. Um, I, the, the question is, did he know... And this is what the peak oil people often get wrong is they've been saying higher prices for 25 years or, you know, for, are imminent. Um, and they, they said in, in 10 years ago, look, see, we predicted this, but they didn't predict the invasion of Iraq, uh, the liberation of Iraq, sorry, uh, or the strike in Venezuela or all the other things that took oil off the market. They predicted problems in the, in the normal production of oil, which did not actually occur. So uh, it, it's partly a question of causality. Uh, the other thing, though, is John Brown came under criticism because uh, after the 98 price collapse, he said he was under pressure from Wall Street and, and London 
uh, the city uh, to to have higher profitability. Um, you know, the industry over the long term has had relatively mediocre rates of return. And so he, he said everybody has to improve their profitability in this corporation, and that supposedly is why you had so many refinery accidents and the BP Macondo disasters. People felt under, under sharp pressure to keep costs down, uh, which doesn't jibe with the notion that, oh, we're going to have higher prices uh, in the future. So I don't know. I haven't heard that. I'll, yeah, I'll have to check I'll have with to, you later. I'll, I'll have to look that up. I mean, this is definitely a perspective from – someone who says we're running out of oil and wants funding for his solar yep. initiatives. Uh, <laughs> so let's see. The well, yeah, I have, I have a, a, a broader question about those. Let me just think if there's anything left to cover with, with shale. So it, it sounds like one thing that's, that's being underestimated and that seems to be underestimated a lot in, in what I would call resource creation is just the ability of people to lower costs. And yet you hear about it in, mm -hmm. in say, solar. You hear how prices are plummeting, even if it's a market glut <laughs> that proves, you know, man, the innovator, if it's solar, but if it's oil, well, shale or, or oil sands, they have this absolute price ceiling and we could never get below that. And how does that make right. any sense? Um, yeah, and that, that's a fallacy. Um, if you go back to the 70s, uh, yeah, it was the uh, assume oil and gas prices rise forever and solar costs come down. Therefore, you know, the breaky, you know, the crossover point is only eight years out. Um, and if you say, well, uh, assume that, no, that oil and gas prices are flat, then the break even point is much further out. Um, and, and that's one reason why a lot of the schemes in the, in the 70s and 80s didn't pan out. Uh, why we don't have electric? Well, I shouldn't say we don't have ele we don't have decent electric cars, competitive electric cars, um, at this point. Um, and because shale oil uh, and gas, that's the kind of thing which is is making people crazy. Because uh, on the one hand, they say, well, hydraulic fracturing is around forever. Um, on the other hand, people are getting a lot better at it. Uh, and you know what what I saw when I looked at around at some of the companies is people talking about ten to twenty percent improvements per year, uh, either in productivity or in cost reductions or some combination thereof. so so the costs were coming down similar to you know the heyday of the of the best photovoltaic. Uh, cost improvement years. Um, so, yeah, it, it definitely means in the longer run, uh, you know, the, the competitiveness of solar uh, to a lesser extent wind with natural gas for power generation is is uh, much further out than most people think. To a lesser extent wind because wind is going to be less competitive than solar or more competitive than solar? I, I think wind is more competitive because wind is sort of concentrated solar. Uh, so a good wind site, I mean, people, you know, people put up solar in my neighborhood you know, in, in, in Massachusetts, and this is not an optimal place for solar, but nobody puts up a windmill in their backyard. Uh, you know, the solar is here because of the subsidies. Uh, wind, you know, gets subsidies, but people put it up in places where there's good wind power. So I think that's the big difference. Interesting. So... This is going to be a slightly weird question, but what do you do every day? <laughs> what do I do? 
Well, let's see. I spend about 20 minutes with the cat, um, my daughter's cat, uh, no, who's very demanding. Um, I, I, I spend a lot of time reading uh, what's out on the, uh, uh, you know, what other people are writing, but also I spend a lot of time trying to come up with um, data uh, from different places and put it together into a coherent picture. The last couple of years I've been doing, you know, on the book, um, and what I've done in my career, there's been cases where I find if you really drill down, uh, you know, it, there's a lot of, uh, we'll say, low-grade ore, but you can refine it and get some insight. Uh, I'll just give you an example. Um, back in the 90s, people said, oh, you know, Russian oil production is very expensive. Uh, and I looked at three different sets of data um, and did calculations with them, and in each case came up with the conclusion that no, the cost of production is about four dollars a barrel. That you know people are just not reading the you know people are just looking at things like uh, investment numbers in rubles and, and not thinking about okay, what does that mean in dollars per barrel, that sort of thing. Um, and that led me to conclude that that you know the when there would be a Russian oil boom, a new Russian oil boom when they f uh, fixed all the fiscal problems. So that's the kind of thing I do, and I generate uh, reports for clients, um, and uh, obviously blog for Forbes, and uh, I keep trying to work on some of my comedy. Uh, although I I need to, I haven't done an energy economic stand up for a couple of years. It's always been at uh, sort of professional conferences. That's why you don't see it on the web. But uh, maybe I'll get something filmed and up on the web uh, sometime soon. I'll try to get the Speakers Bureau to make me coincide with one of your uh, appearances so I can get in okay. an inside uh, inside preview. Well, you mentioned, so the uh, in terms of your consulting work, it's at energyseer.com, which is energy, S-E-E-R.com, right? Yes, that's yes. right. Uh, and uh, in terms of the book, so in... In uh, 2011, you know, we talked and, and you proved quite prescient on, on prices, at least from now until then. Uh, but you also said you had an upcoming book, I think, later that year. So how did that, how did that book's release go? Well, that that's the book I'm working on now. Yeah, it turns out uh, I'm kind of yeah, I'm kind of like BP. I'm always a day late and a dollar short. Um, it's uh, it took me a long time to find a publisher. Um, I think partly because uh, you know people were looking at, at more at peak oil, and and there'd been a number of books, uh, so many books on oil that you know it was hard to convince somebody uh, that there was room for another one. Um, and then just uh, uh, some family things the past couple of years have preoccupied me, and uh, all cleared up now. Uh, knock on wood. Um, so uh, I'm now you know crunching numbers and and you know calculating decline rates and economic cost curves and things like that. And the book, my book will be uh, very dense with data and, and graphs. So lots of data and graphs, but it'll so, be, it'll be super readable, yeah. right? Uh, yes, I think so. I mean, uh, there, about two thirds of it will be more general and we'll talk about historical experience and, um, you know, things like separate, separating out the, uh, uh, sales pitches uh, for new technologies from uh, realistic possibilities, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, there, there will be uh, almost textbook discussion about the economics of oil, but I, I think, uh, you know, which will be more interesting to the uh, uh, 
the more technical reader, but I think a good part of it will be uh, entertaining as people look down and and see, you know, the the, the oil industry follies, shall we say, uh, the energy policy follies of the last 40 years. Interesting. Well, it'll be interesting to see which companies buy a copy for every employee and which which don't. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I have to tell you, uh, back in 1992, uh, I wrote a paper called "The Fog of Commerce: The Failure of Long-Term Oil Market Forecasting," um, and the the head of planning at Exxon sent copies to everybody uh, in his department, and uh, the the Saudi oil minister supposedly did the same. Um, but I didn't. I didn't get a lot of uh, consulting business out of it. I guess. Uh, I mean, part of the problem was, uh, uh, as as a friend at BP said, we know all this stuff now. You know, you've convinced us. So, you know, what what should we pay you for? You know, do something we can pay you for. <laughs> yeah, well, this is you know, this is one of the the rules of I think these these kinds of professions is, to, you know, tell people what to do but not how to do it. You gave away yeah. everything. Yeah, and and it's also you know there there um, I I don't need to go to Exxon to explain energy economics to most of the people there, um, but there are a lot of uh, banks and airlines. I mean you know the airlines bought into peak oil in a big way, which is just so silly. Um, and and uh, we'll we'll see if uh, if you know as a one man operation essentially uh you know how much of my time will be spent going out and and explaining the basics to people outside the oil industry interesting well yeah it can be uh, it it can be scary for them particularly I think for anyone just when you're in the middle of a given price it seems like there's no reality almost to the idea yeah. that it could go down yes and and I'll tell you you know the a classic case 20 years ago, you know, in terms of uh, policymakers, 20 years ago, we, a big conference at MIT, and at one of the sessions, somebody said, okay, yesterday, the automotive engineers said the internal combustion engine can be made much cleaner and much more efficient, and today, we were told by the oil experts that there's lots of oil, don't worry, but last night at dinner, we had uh, a government official say, we have to switch to electric vehicles because gasoline cars are too dirty and we're running out of oil. <laughs> you know, why is there this disconnect? And somebody said, well, you notice that the government official is not here listening to any of the experts. <laughs> and, this, you know, this, this is a big problem is that there's way too many people out there who think they know what's going on. Uh, you know, they, they've heard certain uh, sayings, truisms, urban legends even, uh, and they think they know what's going on. And, and they, they are sometimes shocked to find out uh, that, oh, my God, the price can actually go down, for example. Yeah, well, it's good to have the expert with a big picture perspective and who, who can actually explain it. So with that, Mike, thanks so much for, for being on. No, it's been a pleasure, Alex. I've enjoyed it. Thanks again to Michael Lynch for being on the show. We covered most of what I wanted to cover. Just just another perspective on something I talk about a lot when I talk about Lynch, which is that I really like his thinking methods. If you listen to most people on the news talk about the price of oil, they'll do it in a very disintegrated way. And by that I mean they'll 
just give some very oversimplified explanation that doesn't take into account all of the kind of different dynamics going on, geopolitical dynamics, um, just physical dynamics, economic dynamics. And one thing when I, I talk to Mike and I listen to Mike that strikes me is he just has a very, very firm grasp on seemingly all the relevant things that determine the price. So even when he's wrong, and he will admit when he's wrong, and, and he'll acknowledge that price forecasting is incredibly difficult, he can give plausible explanations of what, what was wrong in his prediction versus somebody who just says, oh, I think oil will go up to $90 a barrel. And they just say that, and then you're supposed to have confidence in it because they're uh, an expert. This is something where the dynamics are very complicated and then the magnitude of each one is not knowable in advance. So it's important to include as many dynamics as you can in your in your forecasts. Explain those to people and then explain what happens uh, as reality actually runs its course. So I think it's it's a really good type of thinking method to use in this field and certainly in other fields and it's definitely conspicuously not on display in discussions of issues like fossil fuels impact on climate. So what else is going on? Well, we haven't been doing many power hours, as you know, if you listen to the show, or if you can see the intervals, we haven't done any power surges uh, in a while. I don't have a great, great reason for that, except that we're still trying to figure out what what format makes the most sense. I've tried the live format, which I like a lot. It's just a matter of, of getting something consistently that, that really works. The original genesis of Power Hour was I wanted to meet all these different people and ask them questions, and, and this podcast was a great way to do that. Now, there are certainly more people in the energy field that we haven't interviewed. There are people that we can re-interview, such as Mike Lynch, we can maybe focus more on the topic of the week, but it's just just a matter of it, there's there's something really great about this this podcast. At least that that's the feedback I get. It's just a matter of figuring out what the right format is. So if if you have any input on that, um, of course feel free to email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. One thing I've been thinking of that definitely coincides with my own interests is starting to cover other aspects of industrial progress, not just energy, but the things, the other industries uh, that depend on energy. Of course, every industry depends on energy, but, but in particular, the types of industries that are attacked for being um, very high development industries, such as the, you know, the chemical industry, um, agriculture, forestry, mining, aquaculture, because in, in each of these industries, there's this huge potential to do really cool things, and there's lots of opposition by so-called environmentalists. So I think just as we've told the story about energy on this show and explored it in a lot of depth, so there's a lot to say about these other fields. And, and uh, unlike energy, where I have, I have a good amount of expertise coming in, these other fields I know much less about. Uh, I, I understand the basic principles involved, but I think, you know, Part of my motivation is I will be fascinated to just hear from, say, the expert in aquaculture who can tell us, hey, you'd be able to get fish this cheaply if only it weren't for this technophobic uh, opposition. So I think there's, there's lots of stuff going on there. Again, if you have input, you can email me 
at alex at industrialprogress.net. Other stuff, uh, the book is going really well. You can get your copies at moralcaseforfossilfuels.com. I'm speaking about once a week uh, these days, so that that's a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of time on the road getting to interact with very, very interesting kinds of audiences, hearing about, you know, whether hearing about college students' reactions to it, uh, people in industry's reaction to it, think tanks' reaction to it. So that's that's just all really interesting, interesting stuff. And uh, you know, if you want to spread the word, we've found that that just spreading the book is super effective. So again, moralcaseforfossilfuels.com. All right. Well, as I said, I don't know when the next episode will be, but I hope you enjoy this episode. Also, make sure to go to alexepstein.com and sign up for the newsletter because that is every week that'll give you the latest Forbes column and that'll also let you know about other media appearances I do, such as uh, participating on other people's podcasts, which I've done lately much more frequently than I've done uh, done my own. But we will be back at some point. Um, so until then, thank you for listening. I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.